vengeance. I am the knight. I am Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will batman ranking podcast where each week my co-host will nevin and i dig into three batman stories discuss them and rank them on our big list thus creating a giant list of batman stories from best to worst will how's it going i'm doing all right i'm doing all right manny lasers and and let me just say we had a good pre-show discussion about uh our shared love of star trek and ranking star trek movies and and i want to Posit out there to all the fucking freeloaders that still haven't signed up for Patreon. Why haven't you? Because once we get to how many was it, Matt? It's 20. 20. Once we get to 20, we're going to sit down and we're going to rank all of the Star Trek movies on this here Batman podcast because that's the content that we crave. Don't give a fuck about what you crave, but I'm ready for that show. I'm so ready. Right. I, I wasted good talking points in our in our discussion off air. And why am I going to waste talking points in a conversation with a friend when I could be giving those points to you as content? So sign up. If you like the show, sign up. You know, you can only you can you can pitch in at the lowest level. That still counts. That still counts, even though. We've got these Jason Todd motherfuckers who have really fucked us over now for two weeks in a row. So final thought, sign up for the Patreon so we can make that Star Trek episode a reality. Yeah. Oh, I I already regret the Jason Todd tier, (laughs) but I don't because I love all of our Jason Todd backers. Some of us love them more than others because tonight, our Jason Todd backer is someone near and dear to your heart, Will. Oh, absolutely she is. Abigail, Abigail, Abigail. My fiance. Mazel. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, our book tonight, Widening Gyre, is uh, actually kind of how we met. Uh, we were... Uh, Wait, we, how? We were, uh, we were on Reddit, and, uh, and sh- she had made a post uh, about uh, Batman and, and Kevin Smith talking about uh, you know some of, some of her uh, uh, things she's into and, and I made a comment that hey I'm kind of in those things but hey they should never cross paths ever 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 again and um, the rest is history yeah so uh, as will said tonight's first story which we'll get to is uh, Kevin Smith's widening gyre and that was what Abigail asked for So that's what we're doing. And we decided to go with three Batman stories by writers who have some ties to Hollywood. We'll we'll get to the others, but let's start with with our request. This is Widening Gyre, which was Batman Mm. the Widening Gyre, issues one to six, written by Kevin Smith, with pencils by Walt Flanagan, inks by R.T. Bear, Colors by Art Lyon, letters by Jared K. Fletcher, edited by Janelle Aslan and Mike Martz, with a cover date of August 2009 to September 2010. Do note that that is nearly a year for these six issues to come out. This was not a bi-monthly series uh, initially. That is just a, you know, Kevin Smith schedule. Uh, and we're, we're still waiting for the second volume. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we're never seeing that, right? God, I hope not. That that will go down with the last three issues of uh, his Daredevil Bullseye miniseries that are never going to happen either. Let me be straight with you right here. I have enjoyed quite a bit of work that Kevin Smith has done over the years. Just not this. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's actually interesting that we're talking about this book this week here in, I don't know, what is this, March? Uh, because we just announced, or not, not we, we didn't fucking announce anything. Dark Horse just announced that Kevin Smith is going to get his own imprint over there, and he's going to cover, or he's going to have uh, View Askew books. So he's going to have like Clark's books and Jay and Silent Bob books and, you know, whatever else he's got going on over there. So he's kind of making a return to comics, as it were. But in this period, it's crazy how he was given like the keys to some of the biggest 
comic book franchises. And I, I haven't read any of his other work, but um, you know, and we'll certainly get into the details here. Wiping Gyre ain't good. I, I haven't even given a synopsis. We just sort of No, you certainly haven't. It's been a long few days and I forgot to put synopses in. So these ones are coming right out of the seat of my pants, folks. So you're going to have to bear with Sh- me. shooting from the hip. Yep. Batman widening gyre is a story of Batman as he encounters or re-encounters two people who will have a significant impact on his life. The new vigilante Baphomet and the return of one of his great loves, Silver St. Cloud. We'll leave that as the synopsis and we're going to get deeply into this. The thing that gets me about this story is there's a really interesting conceit behind it. The idea of what happens when Bruce Wayne falls in love, which granted was part of the plot of Mask of the Phantasm, but still the idea of what happens to Batman when Bruce Wayne wants to make a life for himself? That's a story idea that has legs. The problem is this is couched in everything that makes Kevin Smith Kevin Smith. There are writers out there, especially I no, I'm only even say especially in Hollywood. I was going to say especially in Hollywood, but we see it in comics too who have a very specific language, a very specific way of writing. A voice, as it were. Yes. Aaron Sorkin, Joss Whedon, Kevin Smith, Brian Michael Bendis. You read these writers' stuff, and you can tell that it's by them. And Smith's voice is not one that I feel is conducive to Batman. No, it's certainly not. But And I think you're right. The core idea here is fairly strong. It is a Batman who has been at this for a while. It's certainly not the decades of last week. But this is a Batman that's looking for an exit ramp. And he finds one that's very attractive. And he begins to imagine this life for himself. And it's at its very core, it's not a bad story. But the Kevin Smithiness fucks it all to hell. And it really falls off. Like the the wheels come off the wagon there in issue six. Like, I think you can read the first five issues of this and have an okay time. I mean, it's certainly, it's got its problems. I think any writer who puts uh, the word turd into Batman's mouth should be beaten with sticks. Uh, I think with stronger editing, this could have been a better book, but it doesn't completely fall off the rails until number six, which is full of any number of problems. But the central story is not a bad one. And it's got that Jeff Loeb thing where let's cram in as many characters and as many villains as we can into these pages. There's there's a lot of that, but Smith, when it comes to Batman at least, is not as strong a writer as Lowe. So this feels more awkward than your long Halloweens or dark victories. Each issue, while not necessarily standalone, has sort of discrete bits to it. And so you've got the Poison Ivy bit, the Crazy Quilt bit, the Joker bit, and Funland, for fuck's sake, there's a deep cut. You're going to need to talk to me more about Funland because I thought that was some shit that Smith himself just invented. No, that is a character. That is not a DCU character or not one directly from the DCU. Funland is from the Sandman. There's an issue of Sandman in the second arc, Doll's House, that takes place at a convention for serial killers. Well, that's fucked up. Yeah. And Funland is a character from there. Never appeared anywhere else. That's a horror comic. And Smith took this incredibly horrific character and put him into a traditional superhero book. 
a, a guy who kidnaps and brutalizes children works in a mature reader's horror comic. In a superhero comic, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah, especially as Smith handles that with all of the delicacy that you would expect from him. Yeah. I mean, I was I had completely forgotten Funland was in here and I got to him and I was like, that's familiar. And then it just I, so I was like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. That's the guy from friggin the serial killer convention issue of Sandman. Yikes. There's a lot going on in this six issues. Every issue not only has multiple villains, it has multiple flashbacks, at least one flashback per issue, showing Batman and his relationships to the people around him. And then and there's Baphomet. We should probably spend a little time talking about both Baphomet and Silver St. Cloud. Well, actually, let's start with Silver St. Cloud. Have you ever read either the the trade that is addressed as Strange Apparitions or its sequel, Dark Detective? Uh, that'd be a no, good brother, Matt. Okay, because that is Silver St. Cloud was created by Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers in their short-lived but pretty legendary Detective Comics run. And then they came back to the characters in a miniseries a couple decades later called Dark Detective. And Silver was a love interest for Bruce Wayne. We're going to do that story. Despite it being a bunch of sort of shorts, I think we're going to treat it as one sort of big arc because it only ran for eight issues by this creative team. And there are subplots that connect them all. I mean, it includes things like the Joker fish. That is from that run. It's often addressed as the story where Batman grew up because it becomes a story about Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne having a mature adult relationship with Silver St. Cloud, who by the end figures out he's Batman and leaves him. And then Dark Detective is a sequel. There's reference to it here with the, her and her fiance, the good Evan Gregory, who is crippled by the Joker in that story. But she is very much a, a love interest for Bruce. And so it makes sense that she would be the character that Smith would bring in for this story. Because she, as we see in the book, she stands as a very strong counterpoint to Catwoman. Because Catwoman is Batman's love interest. She's the one who knows and accepts both aspects of his life, while Silver is very much Bruce's love interest. And I have said this from the very first time that I read Widening Gyre. I've read this and I'm fairly convinced. And, and somebody's tried to argue, well, Kevin Smith has children, you know, this and that. I am fairly convinced that Kevin Smith has never had sex, or at least he hasn't had sex by the time he wrote Widening Gyre, because Silver throughout this book calls Bruce Dee Dee. D-E-E-D-E-E, D-D. And as we get to, I think, issue five or six, maybe six, because again, that's it's, where everything goes real, real south. It's six because it's right after he proposed, which is the beginning of six. Yeah. Silver explains that his name is D-D for double digits because the first night they were together, they had sex 11 times. And, and I... I would hope that Mr. Smith would, would listen to our humble show. Um, and let me tell you this, if you haven't discovered this for yourself, Mr. Smith, human physiology doesn't work that way. You simply cannot have sex 11 times in one night. It doesn't work. And please research the refractory period if you're still confused about that. But yeah, there's just, there's so many incel vibes that stem from this. And there's so many just like, I have never been with a woman before. I don't understand how women work. And Catwoman, by God, Ugh. comes off horribly in this book. And let's go ahead and get like the, I believe the greatest sin. Uh, this book, the series has two major sins. The greatest sin is that Silver is fridged on the last page. Fridged like, brutally. 
Oh yeah, her throat is slit. And in a, that's it's a two page is it a two page spread or a splash? One or the other. It's big. Yeah, it's a, it's a two page spread. And a lot of that falls on the feet of the artist. Walt Flanagan who is Kevin Smith's, you know, old buddy. The art in this book is very strange in places. The facial expressions, especially on silver, are bizarre. Same thing for Bruce in some spots. Mm. And the cheesecake, the cheesecake shots of Selena, the cheesecake shots of Ivy, the Ivy stuff. Listen, if you've ever seen Mallrats, you know Smith is obsessed with superhero genitalia. Oh, is he ever? One thing just to to counter, and I don't necessarily disagree with your point. I take the DD thing as 11 orgasms, not necessarily 11 times having sex, which is still an astronomical number, but I might be possible. Not sure. <laughs> but it's, it's still just him being cute. Uh, you say cute, I say fucking stupid. Well, him attempting to be cute, whether it, it works or not. Maybe it's because after last week, nothing could make me more angry or upset that this came off better than I thought it was going to. I was exactly in the same spot. I was like, if we had not read White Knight last week, this would have been a lot rougher. But this is actually readable. Smith fucks up in a bunch of places. He makes a bunch of missteps. But you could actually sit down and read it and kind of enjoy it for what it was meant to be. The flashbacks, you know, they they play into this overall story of Batman. It's too busy. It's too dumb. It's too gross. But it's at least readable. And it doesn't make you feel stupid. It doesn't bore you to death in some spots. Like, it's going to be very much toward the bottom of the list, but in terms of a comparison with White Knight, it beats the bricks off a of White Knight. Silver, I'm trying to decide if Silver is, I feel like Silver is well-written or just well-written in comparison to every other female character in this book. The ridiculously oversexed Ivy and the uncomfortably written Catwoman. She friggin' hires Deadshot to try to kill her to get Batman's attention. Zero agency or independence of her own. It's probably the weakest uh, depiction of Catwoman that I think we've, we've ever read. And that's Catwoman, a character who should be agency incarnate. She's a cat. All cats are, are agency incarnate. I say that's as I right, look guys. at my cat. As my look at my cat who is curled up on top of the body pillow on the bed right now being sleepy. Because it's her bed. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It is her bed. And now, well, let's move on to our other major player here. The new vigilante, Baphomet. Baphomet is where a lot of this sort of falls apart. Because I never have a feeling like we know enough about Baphomet for him to be as important as he is. There's some serious poochie vibes here. Just in case you are not a person out there, audience, who has watched The Simpsons, there's an episode where they add a character to the Itchy and Scratchy cartoon, the cat and mouse cartoon, called Poochie the Dog. And, you know, they build this character up, and he flops. And then it's like, well, we need to make him more, you know, like... When Poochie's not on screen, people should be asking, where's Poochie? Baphomet is a Mary Sue, and he's designed that way. He's designed to be this cool-ass character because he has to be for the story to work. For Batman to take this character into his confidence so quickly and almost from the beginning, Batman is given shit to so many characters who have given him so much more reason to trust them. And yet this guy, because he hits Batman at just the right moment when he's starting to doubt whether he wants to be Batman or not, he suddenly takes him in and is like, I can see this guy is being my replacement. What has this guy done to make him 
trusted by Batman this month. Yeah, in the end, he takes out the Joker solo, which, ooh, that seems like a stretch. But before that, Baphomet is not a character who is fleshed out well enough. If we had trimmed back a bunch of that other stuff and spent more time establishing the Bruce Baphomet relationship, it would have worked better. And A, it's set up. The heel turn is set up. I mean, they, they, they say it. He's also himself Baphomet. Baphomet's a demonic entity or a, a, a pagan god who is translated into Christianity as a demonic entity. This is not a name that you use for a trustworthy character. So my problem with Baphomet is a lot like yours. Uh, I think Batman should have been 10,000 times more skeptical it's the same central problem I had with the very beginning of Tom King's run. Like uh, Batman should not have been so willing and trusting of Gotham and Gotham girl as to turn over, you know, his responsibilities to them. But I suppose at some level, it makes sense. Like, as I said earlier, like Batman's looking for an off ramp, right? He doesn't want to do this forever. It becomes more taxing emotionally and physically as he continues. So on one level, I get it but also there should have been more there. I think it's, it's certainly hard to judge the whole plot based on this first half, but I, I think, you know, Baphomet is supposed to be what some, some other villain, right? Onomatopoeia, Kevin Smith's sort of pet villain he created for Green Arrow and then used in a three issue Batman miniseries called cacophony and then brought here i suppose we like everything else we'll get to cacophony eventually but yeah i think looking back on issue six and and you you brought up baphomet you know bringing in the joker single-handedly i think there's some alliance there that was going to be brought out in the second volume because there's this page in the the final issue where they they exchange like some some knowing glances or some long looks. And that would make sense. I think of the overall context of the story of Joker really being behind this, of being behind the guy who would ruin Batman's happiness. But Baphomet as a standalone character absolutely does not work because it's, it's just, it's set up the whole time. So many people say, Oh, well that, Oh, that name is kind of villainy. And there is one page where Batman actually does like some, some investigation. You know, he follows the guy home and he says, Oh yeah, I'm just this, this insurance adjuster. And my brother died. It made me real sad. Like there's no investigation as to this guy's story. There's no deep dive into him. Batman just accepts it on face value because I suppose he was so good at putting on the act. But yeah, it's uh, it's a little thin in places where it shouldn't be thin. Oh, and then there's issue six. I mean, aside from the fridging, aside from the terrible way in which Catwoman is written, the the DD thing, which the, the explanation for that, there's the moment where Batman tells Baphomet that, you know, we all make mistakes early on. I peed my pants in year one. Yeah. Smith just decides to take the piss out of what is undisputedly one of the greatest Batman moments of all time, which I just ignore because fuck that. <laughs> oh, man. Don't you don't you want to think of the one of the most uh, serious moments in, in Batman's comic book history? Uh, he was just squishing around in pee pants. No. No, I'd rather not. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's done to uh, to create this kind of bonding moment with Baphomet, like Baphomet, like unmasks to like Bruce and Robin's surprise, and I think Batman feels like, oh, I kind of owe him something. I I owe some kind of you know some measure of camaraderie. So let me tell this story about how I pissed myself during year one, and. I cannot believe that editorial let him get away with that. The language in here, I could kind of forgive. You know, Kevin Smith is 
let's be honest, he's on the downswing in what, 09, right? He is removed from, I kind of imagine Jay and Silent Bob strike back as his zenith. That seemed to be the moment where he had the most cultural relevance. And let me, let me double check when that was. That was probably oh three or oh four somewhere around there oh 2001 wow that's earlier than i thought i mean you know we we joked in the comics xf slack that this dark horse news is oh it's only about 15 years too late sorry abigail i i love you dearly and i know you're a kevin smith fan but I, i can't help but joke on the guy but um yeah, I, I don't know why he had so much leeway to do the things that he did in this series. And I especially don't know how you're allowed to do Batman pee pants in year one. Like, I don't I don't get it. I do not get it, Matt. I, I got nothing on that one. I mean, there's there, there's lots of little things we could dig into here, but I think we've kind of hit all the high and low points in general on this book without going into all of the very specific little bits. Batman should never say turd. Batman should never pee his pants. And Batman should never have more than 10 sexual engagements in one night. These are the laws of Batman. There we go. But I think that means that it's time. It's time to put Batman, the Whining Gyre, on the big board. We are at 84 stories on our big list. We are well on the way to 100 stories. Number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 25 is Bloodstorm from the Batman Bloodstorm original graphic novel. Number 50 is Arkham Asylum Living Hell, the six-issue miniseries. Number 75 is Batman, Gotham by Gaslight. And our new bottom story is Batman, White Knight. So, Alexander, let let me point out, just like Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves was not a good book, Alexander, Batman, White Knight is not a good book either. Please, please do not seek it out. It's not good. It's very bad. Where are we on this one we're we're in the 80s i would agree i'm gonna say that it was more readable than superman and batman versus vampires and werewolves yes i agree this is not by any stretch of the imagination good but this never dragged the way superman and batman versus vampires and werewolves did this kept up a pace it did. Uh, Kevin Smith can tell a story. Uh, it's going to be a bad story a lot of the times, but he can tell a story. And, uh, and and this is something I didn't get to, but all of his sidekicks have the same voice, they, but they, they're kind of clever. They absolutely do. Tim Drake reads like Dick Grayson. They all read like Dick Grayson, a little pithy, a little winky and clever. Tim can be clever, but Tim is never as jokey as Dick is. And for that measure, Baphomet reads the same way too. Yeah. Like all all of the sidekicks have the same voice, Uh, but it's not a bad voice. Like it, it doesn't work because it all reads the same, but it doesn't drag. There aren't paragraphs upon paragraphs upon paragraphs like White Knight. But yeah, like you said, we're definitely in the 80s. So above Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves is Stop Me If You Heard This One, the Superman-Batman annual that retells that story on the boat where Batman and Superman discover each other's origins, but it's got Deadpool. I think this is just as problematic as blue the gray and the bat at 81 like i almost want to push with that because of just catwoman being so bad here uh that terrible decision to not only fridge saint cloud as a cliffhanger like right let's underline this fact like the last page in this man's book is a woman getting her throat slit 
And that was supposed to encourage you to read the second volume. That again has never come. I will flat out say, I mean, I own every freaking Batman comic that has come out since 1990, probably back a little ways as back issues. I was sorely tempted to not pick up the second half of this if it had ever come out because of that. And actually, there have been a couple since then that I haven't gotten because of other creator issues. But generally speaking, I own pretty much every Batman comic from 1990 to present. But that ending was so shock for shock's sake and so tone deaf to where we were even in 2010. I think this is probably... Oh, 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 and it's, it's sorry to interrupt. This is, and, and again, this is another reason why the sixth issue is so terrible. This is after Bruce drags her out of the Batmobile by her hair oh, because he's convinced that she's, you know, some kind of plant or, you know, enemy or something like, God damn. Just what a wretched, wretched thing. And the fact that she just acts like, oh, no, it's okay, honey. I understand. Hell no. Even if you do understand it's. You need fucking therapy before we get married because you just assaulted me. So it, it, it cannot go any higher than 80. No, I honestly think, listen, the blue, the gray and the bat has that one really problematic bit with the dark nights, which is really problematic. Do not get me wrong. But this has more problematic content than that. Stop me if you've heard this one has a lot has more than one instance of misogyny, which is part of why it's down as low as it is. I think this is either 82 or 83. It's it's below Blue the Gray and the Bat, but I think it's 82. I think it's more readable than Stop Me If You've Heard This One. I'd agree with that, but uh, it's it's real, real close to being right there with Superman and Batman, Vampires and Werewolves. It is just, it ain't a great book. In fact, it's one of the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and we continually talk about how Super Heavy is benefited by that one single issue. I think this is drug all the way down into the murky depths by number six. Oof. Yeah. Without number six, this would still be in like the low 60s, upper to middle 70s. But this loses like 10 or 15 spots from that ending. Does it ever? Good Lord. Next up is No Law and a New Order. This is from Batman No Man's Land number one. Batman Shadow of the Bat, number 83, Batman Volume 1, number 563, and Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 730. The writer is Bob Gale, pencils by Alex Maleve, inks by Wayne Foucher, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, letters by Willie Schubert, edited by Denny O'Neill, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, Scott Peterson, and Joseph Illage, with a cover date of March 1999. Welcome to No Man's Land. Gotham, having been separated from and quarantined by the U.S. government, we see a Gotham that is under a completely new order. And Batman, returning to the city after three months, finds it a changed place. This story makes this episode because Bob Gale is a noted screenwriter, most famous for having written the Back to the Future trilogy. This is the first arc of the epic year-long No Man's Land story, where Batman basically became a weekly title, where a story would move from one book to the next, to the next, to the next, and you'd have sometimes, in this case, a month-long arc with the same creative team over four different titles. It's a very different format, and it's an experiment that, as we read No Man's Land throughout, I found work. No Man's Land is, as a general concept, one of my favorites. And it, as a, a whole thing, is something I really love. And this is your first real exposure to the NML, right, Will? Yes, sir. You know, we talked about this as we were kind of planning this episode. Background 
secret knowledge for all of you out there. We had originally intended to do a Patton Oswalt story, Welcome to the Working uh, Week from uh, JLA, but that is apparently uh, not available digitally. So we had to uh, we had to swap that out for something else that we'll get to. But yeah, uh, it's an interesting idea, I think. But imagining myself having to go to the the local comic book shop and track this thing over any number of books, I can only imagine that you would have to have that precious uh, checklist in hand. And it's it's a neat idea, but uh, I can imagine it drove some people crazy trying to track this story over all of these different books. Gale himself, I think, is an interesting character because he's basically only done a handful of things over his career, but they have all been like, I don't know, really, really successful things. You know, Back to the Future and chipping in on a seminal Batman story. And then there might have been only a handful of other things on his uh, on his Wikipedia credits. I, I looked at those and I was like, wow, he just he hasn't done much for being, you know, so accomplished. Now, he wrote one other major comic thing that I can remember. He wrote an arc on Daredevil. He, his first credit is an episode of Kolchak, the Night Stalker, which I love seeing that because loves me some Kolchak, the Night Stalker. But yeah, he has very few credits, but this is, oh, he also wrote an Ant-Man one shot. Huh. Oh, and and one other thing, because this is all like weird Marvel credits. Well, not weird, but outside of my purview. Uh, He also was one of the writers when Spider-Man went three times a month and they were doing alternating writers. So each book could keep, you know, so the book could keep on time coming out three times a month. Huh. But that sounds like a lot, Marvel. Uh, and let me ask you this. We, we haven't talked about this. This is going to obviously be our bonus episode this month. You seen the Batman? Oh, yeah. Good. And I'm sure by the time all of this comes out in April, most of uh, our good listeners out there will have seen the Batman. I really loved how the film is a natural setup for a really believable version of No Man's Land. Yeah, I, the core concept of No Man's Land is kind of silly. There's no way the government would really seal off a major American city like this. But for a concept for a story in a superhero universe, sure, it absolutely works. And it is a very gritty story. We don't get a ton of Batman superheroic stuff until the third issue of this arc. The first couple issues are really there to set up the world and what the stakes of the no man's land are. Yeah, this is a world that's completely different. Social order is gone. Your cash dollars mean nothing. Uh, This is a barter society. Uh, I think one of my favorite scenes over the course of the story is just how much a, a fresh apple means to these people. Like, an apple is traded for diamonds. And the only reason it's traded for diamonds is because the person who has it, the penguin, has a pipeline out of the city. Because the diamonds don't mean anything in Gotham anymore. Because what good are they? Flashlights, batteries, these are the things that people value. Why am I thinking Scarecrow? Scarface. Yes. Uh, his, his goons, they get one bullet. We got to ration our bullets. This whole world, you know, as you say, the, the, the central conceit is a, is a little silly in that, of course, America would not just like foreclose and give up on a major city, but the world itself feels very grounded. Like there are stakes to all of this. Like every bullet matters. Every scrap of food matters. Every city block matters. So the story kind of lost me over the four issues in that it is so decompressed. But other than that, I really, really like the seriousness and just the overall tone and how all of these these small details seem to matter in this world that is very different than we see in anywhere else in Batman. As I said, Batman doesn't show up until part three. Issue one is really about the city and about the remnants of the GCPD, 
who are attempting to keep a small fraction of the main island of Gotham running under some sort of benevolent order. Because the city has basically been carved up into fiefdoms controlled by different Arkham inmates and street gangs and things like that and is narrated by Oracle who her clock tower had rechargeable batteries and she has various tech from Wayne Enterprises and the JLA. So she's... Yep. Which that was established during the cataclysm, the earthquake that set all this up, that Wayne properties were quake-proofed and most of the rest of Gotham wasn't. But she, she narrates this. It starts out on day 93 since... Gotham was separated and Batman is gone and Gordon is done because he feels like he's been abandoned. And we see a setup of all of the different GCPD characters who will be important to this story, which will stretch for the remainder of the year. You got Gordon, you've got Sarah Essen, his wife, Bullock and Montoya, Bach, who is Sarah's partner and a regular character in the Bat books for the past five or six years, and Foley, who was a minor character before this, and SWAT Sergeant, head of the SWAT team, Billy Pettit, who was also a minor character, but those two become major characters here. And you, you build those smaller characters and establish the rest of them because they are going to be some of your central spine characters throughout this arc them and the mysterious new batgirl who if you've listened to this podcast we've already spoiled who that is in a previous episode pettit is a great heavy in this arc because uh if look i'm a big fucking fan of the departed i fucking love the departed and you got that one scene where martin sheen is like you know why do you want to be a cop do you want to you know help people or do you just want to beat up minorities pettit is the the latter like he is here to hassle the oppressed to oppress the oppressed and to basically just engage in wanton violence and how gordon navigates that and tries to restrain him uh and ultimately fails is just a really good commentary on police in america over the course of no man's land you watch Pettit go from bad to worse. Oh, I can imagine. His downfall is one of sort of the central arcs of No Man's Land. Shocking no one, there is eventually a schism in the GCPD between those who follow Gordon and those who follow Pettit. You can see that coming right from here. And you see Jim Gordon, the most righteous of men, struggling with what he needs to do and him making some very morally questionable choices because he's a father. Yeah. In this first arc, he basically becomes a warlord like any other warlord in this uh, no man's land Gotham. Morally, he's not much better than Scarface or Two-Face or anybody else who's trying to hold on to territory. He just tries to make better choices, but ultimately he says, you know, he says to the uh, gang members that he's captured, leave this territory or we will shoot you. And whether he meant it or not, it doesn't matter because Billy Pettit sure as fuck meant it. Oh, 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 boss, you, you want to, uh, to give me a green light for that? All right, I'll do it. Boom. This sets up a lot of threads that will run through the rest of the year. Jim's disillusionment with Batman. You see Jim planting a garden at the beginning of this story, and you will watch that garden literally grow throughout the entirety of the year. You see Bruce, when Bruce does show up, really struggling because Gotham has changed. Gotham is not the city that he's used to. He has to relearn the city. And he's, this time, he is absolutely trying to be the lone crusader that a lot of fans believe he is and that he rarely actually is because he believes that Gotham is too dangerous to trust his usual group of sidekicks. 
And in the end, he has to rebuild the legend of Batman and he has to play by the rules of the no man's land. It's a central point of these first four issues about you know, whether Batman would tag or not, you know, engage in the kind of graffiti that you see here that even the police engage in. But that's the rules of the new reality that they're in. And eventually Batman's like, OK, I guess that's that's how we do it now. This is a really strong start to what is a mammoth story. And listen, not every arc of No Man's Land is great. Some are much better than others. By the end, it ends real strong when you get Greg Rucka and Devin Grayson writing pretty much the last two and a half, three months. But in the middle there, it can get kind of soft. But There's also some really strong stuff in the middle. But this was a good way to start it. This is early work from Alex Maleev, who is not quite at the style that you'll see him do with Bendis in Daredevil or Spider-Woman. This is still has some real Mignola vibes to it in places, but it works for this story. I really dig The way it establishes the world is a helicopter tour flies close to the city and some food gets dropped and you follow the food. So you're able to see how something that we take as simply like a small box of cookies matters so much in the no man's land. Or in the second issue where you get these three little interludes with a guy who's trying to mug people with pretty much an empty gun who winds up running afoul of the Joker. And well, we can all imagine how well that goes. Not well. And that's one page. And the Joker doesn't appear again until cover date of March. This came out in January. Because this story ran from first week of January through the last week of December. Joker doesn't show up again until July or August, except for one issue of an Azrael tie-in. Joker is a boogeyman throughout the first half of this story, which I think really works. You're not going to waste the Joker early in this story. The Joker is out there plotting something, but you're going to spend the first half dealing with Black Mask and Scarecrow and Penguin and Ivy and Croc before you get to Two-Face and Joker and the other big bad who doesn't show up until the very end, who becomes one of the other central figures that I'm not going to spoil because you haven't read this yet, Will. We are going to do No Man's Land in order. I don't want to bounce around because there's a logical build to the way this story works. And I don't want that to be blown by us reading Endgame, the final arc, before you've read the intervening stories. I'm fully on board with that plan. I've got all the trades digitally and I am ready to go. It will also introduce two characters to the Batman mythos who are nowadays central to the Batman mythos. One introduced whole cloth and one introduced to the comics. By the end of No Man's Land, both Cassandra Cain and Harley Quinn will have joined the Batman comics canon. So that's something to look forward to in here as well. So this, and you mentioned it earlier, but this Batgirl who looks like Orphan is not Orphan, correct? No, Orphan will take that costume when that Batgirl gives it up. Middle of the series, there's a major status quo shift. And this Batgirl surrenders the costume and Cassandra takes it up. Cassandra's introduced towards not quite at that middle point but a little before yeah i I know that this batgirl definitely did not read like orphan um so i was like oh this this can't be the the contemporary version of this character i i I i ain't that bright but at least i know that no this remains a mystery through the first half and then come june there's a twist when you know batman starts calling the family home that's sort of that twist in the, not twist, but the pivot, because twist entails a surprise. That's the pivot in the middle. And that's when you get the reveal of who this is. And Cassandra 
joins the, the Bat family officially and Tim and Dick start returning to Gotham and things like that happen. But we'll get there when we get there. One day. Do you have anything else on this one, Will? I'm all done, so that means it's time to put no law and a new order on the big board. First thing, top half. Definitely top half. Uh, I'll do you a, a little better and say top 30. I can definitely agree with that. Top 25? Yeah, I'm looking at probably low 20s. I don't think it beats Gothic at 20. I don't think it makes it into the top 20. But I remind think... me, remind me about Gothic. Gothic is the Grant Morrison Mr. Whisper story. The immortal serial killer story. Not even ringing a bell. Lots of poetry, weird British public schools near Gotham, guy killing mobsters and then attempting to sacrifice all of Gotham to the devil so he doesn't die. Vaguely ringing a bell now. Yeah. Above that is Blink. Dwayne McDuffie, blind guy. I, I, I do remember Blink. I don't quite think it beats Blink. No, but it, it, it's right there. Yeah. I mean, I loves me, loves me my Tim Drake. You know that. But I <laughs> of think course. it beats Identity Crisis. The Tim Drake becomes Robin story. Because I just think the world building in this story is so good. And so realistic for what it would be. Yeah, I mean, there are some real uncomfortable parallels reading this story today while reading the news. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, what the, the, the perils that urban people might face in, in a situation where the traditional civil order has broken down, the things you might have to do to simply survive Uh, Yeah, all of that does ring true. It might be gothic. I love gothic, but the the world building here is so strong. Blink is fun. And frankly, because we're watching the news, I kind of need some fun in my head right now. Let's slide it in at 20 then. Yeah, I think this is our new number 20. No law and a new order. Our final story of the night is the Gotham Villains 80th Anniversary Giant. We'll we'll touch on the individual creative teams as we go, as this is an anthology, but it was edited entirely by Paul Kaminsky and has a cover date of January of 2022. This is a collection of a series of shorts that feature different Batman villains that's pretty much the the synopsis we'll talk about each story as we go the reason this made it onto this episode is because the first story bird cat love is written by danny devito noted actor and portrayer of the penguin with art by dan mora and tamra bonville i don't know if we're necessarily going to go through all of these because not all of them there's not a ton going on in a lot of them but we're definitely going to talk about that one because it's the reason why it made it in the episode. And boy, howdy, that is a weird freaking story. Yeah, you, you would have thought it would have been easier to find celebrity writers on Batman, like dilettantes basically parachuting in. That's the, that's the whole idea behind this episode. You know, I, if, if only we were over, you know, doing just general Marvel stuff, we could have done CM Punk's what he did a run on i think hulk no 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 no. uh drax drax um certainly we could have found something we could have done kevin smith's daredevil right yeah i mean we Uh, could have done the other we could have done cacophony but i didn't want to do two smith stories in one no that would have been that would have been too much yeah uh i mean the other one that i i was thinking uh cameras johnson the actor who plays batwing on batwoman did a, sh- a Batwing short in a recent issue of Urban Legends that was actually pretty fun, but Bruce doesn't appear in that story. He appears in the issue in some of the other stories, but doesn't appear in that story. And Bruce does have at least a cameo in this 
first story. So I kind of wanted it to have some Batman in it. We've recently done John Ridley, who's a screenwriter, noted screenwriter and Oscar winner. I didn't want to jump right back into the Ridley pond right away. And a lot of those stories will fit other themes better. This, I just kind of was like, okay, this really does fit this theme. So let's just, let's hit it while we, while we can. But yeah, I'm not 100% sure what DeVito was going for in this story. I think this is very much DeVito as a character in this. What if I was the penguin and what if I played him as, as a good guy? And what if I got to take the pretty girl home? And what if we also got to uh, inoculate the world against coronavirus? Like, what a, what a fun story that would be. And I'm a good guy. And, and I think, like, Danny DeVito is legendarily a good guy. And so I, I don't want to be too harsh on this because, again, he's, he's just such a fun character. This is the weakest story in the book. Yeah. It's not terrible. Don't get me wrong. It's, but it's just it's an odd story because it's it's not quite in any continuity and it's it's just DeVito having fun and it's pretty Dan Moore and Tamara Bonvillain slay the art on this story but we've sung Moore and Bonvillain's praises on their work on detective repeatedly already so it's not shocking that this is a good looking story but yeah the the basic idea here is that Catwoman and Penguin are in love and they uh, they pull a couple of jobs. Uh, I think one of them stolen directly from the Italian job. Uh, that's helicopters and gold was very reminiscent of of something somewhere. But yeah, the the end goal is to take the coronavirus vaccine and somehow give it to everyone in the world, which seems like a very Devito idea. Yeah, it's a fine story it's cute it's fun it's weird but it's what it is and i i mean i'm boy i've we've read way worse stories over the course of this show yeah i'm not gonna argue with that it was uh, you know you said weird and it is definitively weird i think the issue as a whole is not bad all of these other stories, like I said, are stronger. I think for me, having Raish and Talia back to back, I was like, ah, that's a little too much of uh, of them. Uh, preview for next week, but yeah, I don't. There wasn't any anything in here that was terribly objectionable, no. and I, you could see DC like trying to, you know, put some pieces together for this year. I thought there was one. I think the Mad Hatter story teased to Arkham Asylum. Arkham and, City, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, of course, Dan Waters wrote it. I didn't remember Hatter being so central to that series, but there was a lot going on in that book. He was there at the beginning and there at the end. He's sort of the first one that Pig nabs, and so he disappears throughout the middle of the series. But that was one of... The, the stories I really liked because a it, it gets Damien sort of right that Damien would be Tetch's nightmare because Tetch sort of has this that weird thing with childhood and Damien is a child who is by no means actually a child and I love the ending it, it it's a an almost Twilight Zone esque twist where you know they've seen Tetch near this wayne research lab and so damien and the gcpd are tearing up the research lab while tetch is actually two buildings down stealing himself a new hat my favorite batman ending is that it's not a conspiracy there's nothing wrong happening it's all just batman being too prepared too hyper focused too aware and sometimes everything is not as terrible as you think it is which is kind of hopeful mad hatter just Wanted a new hat. From an endangered, uh, what, rabbit, right? Yes. Half of these stories are things that are tying into future or upcoming, at that point, stories. And half of them are just one-offs. 
Birdcat Love is just a one-off. The Scarecrow story, The Fearless Man, is just a one-off. For the Sky is Red, the Red Hood story is just a one-off. And The Happiest Man in Gotham, the Killer Moth story, are just one-offs. I'm going to butcher this, but we're going to try. Ophio Cordyceps Lamia, the Poison Ivy story. Hey, you fucking nailed that shit. Or at least you did better than I would have. Seems to be setting up whatever is going to be happening with Ivy over the course of 2022. As we said, perfect fit ties into Arkham City. Demon's Game was a prelude to the Batman, Superman, and the Authority one-shot. And the second eye, the Talia story, is a setup for a lot of the stuff that's been going on with Talia in the Robin ongoing and in the upcoming Shadow War crossover. So these were all there for a reason or because they were fun. And I think that makes for a nice balance in this book as well. They weren't all either heavily consequential or complete fluff. It's interesting to see where Ivy's going to go, because I think of all of the stories that kind of have consequences moving forward, seems like Ivy's the only one that we haven't really gotten into, you know, now three months into the year. Yeah, because this obviously takes place after Fear State, because she's out and together and is missing Harley, who sort of broke it off with her in the Harley Quinn series because Ivy, her experiences around Fear State left her a little wilder and a little more shattered than she had been. Yeah, I'm curious if G. Willow Wilson, who wrote that story, will be doing more with Ivy at some point because G. Willow Wilson is the only one of those four stories who has not been announced on anything. Because the Philip K. Philip Kennedy Johnson, who wrote Demon's Game, wrote that Batman, Superman, and the Authority one shot. Waters wrote Arkham City, and Second Eye, the Talia story, was co-written by Joshua Williamson, who's writing, I think, pretty much all of the Shadow War issues because they're in the three books he's writing right now: Batman, Robin, and Deathstroke. Before gracefully stepping aside for Chip Zdarsky, which is going to be so much fucking fun. So good. If you were going to do both Raish and Talia, I wouldn't have put those stories back to back in the anthology. I would have put one towards the beginning and one towards the end. Seems an odd choice to do them back to back, if not doing both of them in the one anthology. Yeah, agreed. Here's, Here's a question, and it's a little bit of our, you know, Going down a bit of a bit hole, not going to take as much time as our Arkham baseball game bit hole, but still. Oh boy. Which villain would you have liked to see get a short in here that didn't? Knowing that Joker and Catwoman both had their own 80th anniversary one shots. Hmm. I'm always a sucker for a good Harvey story, uh, a more grounded Harvey story that's not obsessed with, you know, two, 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 two. I thought one moment that we had in Widening Gyre that was actually pretty good was that brief uh, reference to Harvey that was like, at least tell Gilda where I am. Like, wow, that that that's a deep cut. So yeah, I think we could have done we could have done something with old Harv. If you got Penguin. And obviously Catwoman and Joker are, are in other books. You've got Killer Moth, which kind of covers like your, your condiment king, your kite man sort of tier. Can't load it up with, with too many silly characters after that. Yeah, I think my best answer is, uh, is Two-Face. There were two or three options in my head. Two-Face was definitely there. I mean, I was thinking about Riddler, but an eight-page Riddler story would be really tricky. I also would I'm always up for a good Zaz story. There aren't a ton of good Zaz stories, but when he's written really well, he's a really interesting villain. And I think you could have pulled off a nice, creepy eight-page Zaz story. But Two-Face felt like the most glaring omission, as he is probably, depending on the day of the week and the way the wind is blowing, the second or third most important Batman villain behind Joker and up there with Rage. At least as being important to the Batman story, because I think like the, the Gordon Dent 
Batman triumvirate is central to his story. Uh, now, what Two-Face does as a villain, I think, is, is immaterial. But Harvey Dent's fall is, I think, really critical to the story of Gotham and the story of Batman. Remind me which one of these here stories takes place in the Millerverse. It's the, uh, it's the Scarecrow story. It is. Yeah, because we've got uh, we've got the mutants. Oh and then we've yeah, got, uh, we've got uh, Carrie Kelly. Oh wow, I'd have to go. I wow, I hadn't even. I, I was so focused on the Nightwing bits of that, I had completely not been paying attention to that bit. It's a retooled Millerverse, but yeah, the the mutants are definitely there, and and you certainly have Carrie Kelly. Let's look at that again, because the mutants, every now and then writers try to make the mutants show up in the main DCU and they never quite work. So they appear for like one or two issues and then it's like, yeah, these guys don't work and they get kind of shunted off to the side. Yeah, I mean, I reread this, but I clearly was glancing at that story a little more than I was at some of the others. Yikes. But yeah. I mean, the Scarecrow story is fine. The Red Hood stories are fine, but they're neither of those are the ones that really stuck in my head as much. I actually got a kick out of the Killer Moth story, the happiest man in Gotham. I'm just uh, I'm just surviving on the scraps, right? When uh, when you, when you know your place in the world, it's okay. Yeah, it, that's actually makes that gives Killer Moth a niche, which no one else is really occupying, and is a decent niche for Killer Moth. I, uh, I stay in my lane. Uh, do you have anything else on this one? I've got nothing left, so that means it's time to put the Gotham City Villains Anniversary Giant on the big board. I'm thinking solidly middle of the list. Exactly my thought. And if we are at now 86 stories, we're looking around about 40, 43 I think, you want to hear my bid? Sure. My bid on this is a little below that, but not by much. My bid is this is the new 46. It's not as fun as Batman Judge Dredd, which is 45. Absolutely not. But it's probably, for the sum of its parts, better than favorite things that Mark Miller Christmas issue. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that at 46. Favorite things would probably be in the 30s if Batman had just been a good, decent human and given away the train. But whatever, whatever, Batman, whatever. You process your trauma however uh, works for you. So I think that that makes this our new 46, the Batman villains 80th anniversary giants. So that's it for this week. Next week, as the Shadow War rages across the Bat titles, we look at three stories about the demon's head himself, Rachel Ghoul. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June is Dead, Long Live June, Joshua Wheel, uh, Will's new fiance, Abigail Hartball. Who I well. love despite having uh, had to read Widening Gyre yet again. <laughs> As I'm a fangirl, Tony Thornley and Sam Hopper for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on ComicsXF.com. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm also out of here. Good night, Miami. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.